just one or two quick messages, um, to uh, especially for rare book school students. Can you hear me, or should I turn this up? Fine. Um, students, please do remember to check the message board outside of room 522 when you're going to and from break, because there we'll post phone messages that uh, come to our rare book school hotline for you. Also, the Notion Shop uh, down in room 511 will be open for uh, 20 minutes or as long as there is interest after this lecture. Uh, you remember the Notion Shop sells uh, books, used books that have been donated to us for resale, uh, letterpress posters, book arts press publications, and rare book school souvenirs so that you can remember us in the cold months. And also you'll be able to... Um, become members of the Book Arts Press, the support group for rare book activities here at Columbia. I remind students that the library, Butler Library opens at 9 in the morning, and even though you may see the doors, the front doors to Butler open before that, that is to uh, allow the ingress of the um, rare book school staff and the Butler Library staff, too. There's no coffee ready until 9. There's, there's no Entenmann's ready until 9. So I urge you all to um, come only after the library opens at uh, 9 o'clock. We, we need the time, and the Butler Library needs the uh, hour between 8 and 9 to prepare for the day's activities. Uh, I remind you that tomorrow night, starting at 6 o'clock, we'll be showing a series of uh, videotapes, book arts, book-related videotapes and films in room 508 and 505. We'll show videotapes and films simultaneously, and you're invited to walk back and forth to sample them. We, this, by way of a disclaimer, I'm, we're not um, pushing any of them. We just want you to see the uh, wide range of those things available at the Book Arts Press. And a reminder, Thursday night, our next speaker is Dan Traster, who's on the faculty this week at Rare Book School, the Assistant Director of Special Collections at University of Pennsylvania, talking on the reluctance to publish in a print culture. Tonight, I'm so pleased to introduce to you Catherine Kais-Lieb, who is from um, Washington, Connecticut, a sylvan town visited, welcomed, which welcomed two um, rather distracting visitors today, a tornado and the Rolling Stones, which uh, who will live there for the rest of the summer. Uh -huh. Catherine Kais Lieb is the editor for the editor of American Book Prices Current, and is a frequent and very welcome lecturer here at Columbia University. I always have to compete with something. This time it's molds. But anyway, tonight's title represents a real step forward for me in terms of a T. Bellinger project. For this is the first normal-sounding title I've ever been assigned here. Usually I get down the rabbit hole with Bam Bam or something like that. <clears throat> I almost feel that I've arrived. Having arrived, I think I'll cut out part of the title of tonight's lecture and not attempt to analyze all of 20th century book collecting for you. 
Instead, what you are really getting is H. Bradley Martin, the sale of his books and manuscript, what's that like, and what thoughts it triggers in the head of a person who may have been watching this scene too long. Let us begin, though, with one thought about book collecting in general. The nature of the book collecting game is such that it does not normally attract the self-publicizers, the Donald Trumps of the art and antiques collecting world. The purchase of one painting of irises can make you a world-renowned connoisseur and certainly makes for a publishable photograph of you and your famous possession. But the acquisition of one book, no matter how costly, makes you a guy with one book. <laughs> and unless you are an archbishop with a Gutenberg Bible, a picture of you with one book would make you look pretty silly. Book collecting, therefore, tends to be shunned by yuppies and other seekers of the limelight, for it does not lend itself to photo opportunities or to sound bites. Thus, it tends to be practiced by people who take pains not to be public collectors. But when book collections of these men and women come to auction, there arises what public relations people call a recognition problem. Thus, in April of this year, when Sotheby's issued a 16-page prospectus announcing the auctioning of the library of H. Bradley Martin in a massive series of sales, the almost university, universal reaction among those who received the prospectus was, the library of who? You won't find any information on Bradley Martin in such standard sources as Who's Who in America or the Social Register. Even his obituary notice in the New York Times came three days late and contained very few facts. Martin, whose book collection was appraised at $40 million by Sotheby's after his death, was an intensely private person who did not choose to have his name appear in print anywhere. Oh, he did allow acknowledgments when he lent books to Yale or the Morgan for exhibitions, and he did allow the book collector to write about his collection in 1963, but that was about the extent to which the privacy rule ever got relaxed. Martin has been described very sparsely in Sotheby publicity verb, uh, blurbs as a grandson of Henry Phipps or an heir to the Phipps steel fortune, and so he was. But there is much more to the story. Let us begin with his other grandfather, the original Bradley Martin. This Martin was the son of a leading Albany lawyer and banker, and he married a wealthy woman with strong social aspirations. They eventually set up residence in New York City, living in a splendid townhouse at 22 West 20th Street. In 1893, the Martins married off their daughter to the Earl of Craven, and newspaper accounts referring to this occasion reveal the original Bradley Martin as something of a collector. A thief broke into the Martin house while everybody was at the church, and he undoubtedly hoped to steal the very expensive wedding presents or some of the famous craven jewels. But all of these had been secreted, said the newspaper, and the thief had to content himself with a quantity of silverware and 13 pieces from Bradley Martin's collection of antique watches. So this is where the collecting bug comes from. After their daughters married, the Martins spent a fair amount of time in Britain, even buying a picturesque Scottish castle called Balmacan. It is therefore not surprising that their son, Bradley, who lived from 1873 to 1963 and was the father of our collector, 
spent his college years at Oxford, graduating in 1894 before returning to America and Harvard Law School, from which he graduated in 1897. The year 1897 was also a milestone in the life of the Elder Martins. Events that year changed the life of the Martins forever and would earn them a perhaps unwanted place in the Guinness Book of World Records, which lasted till 1984. In 1897, while the United States was still recovering from the devastating effects of the Panic of 1893, the Martins were responsible for the most extravagant party given in modern times, the Bradley Martin Ball, which was held in New York on Wednesday evening, February 10th, 1897. This costume ball, its avowed purpose being to put money in circulation, at a time when bread lines were very long indeed, saw some $370,000 being spent to turn the ballroom of the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel into a replica of the Palace of Versailles at the time of King Louis XV of France and to costume the guests appropriately. The very announcement of the forthcoming ball caused editorial writers and such clerics as Dr. Rainsford of St. George's Episcopal to complain, for this expenditure would be the equivalent of several million dollars today. And in 1897, some 10 million Americans, out of a total population of 75 million, had annual incomes under $400. For weeks before the Martin Ball, the Society columns gushed forth endless details, publishing lists of what the guests would wear, speculating about what could have been done to improve the appearance of less than shapely male legs, and wondering whether men would shave off all facial hair for the sake of authenticity in costume. Soon there wasn't an available costume left on the eastern seaboard, and all old lace and antique jewelry in New York had been bought for trimmings. The Martin Ball was a brilliant occasion, according to all accounts. Bradley Martin shone in a court suit of brocade as Louis XV. His wife dressed as Mary Stuart in a gold-embroidered gown hemmed with pearls and precious stones. She wore a tiara that was described by the New York Times as a small sheet of fire emitting iridescent rays that blended with the exquisite coloring of the magnificent dress. Mrs. M was rather larger than I, so she must have looked like a sun radiating there. <laughs> the social lion, August Belmont, wore a suit of gold inlaid armor valued at $10,000 and was much admired. So that this occasion would not be lost to posterity, the Gilbert Photography Studio, located two blocks from the Waldorf, stayed open from the ball's beginning at 9 p.m. to its ending at 9 the next morning so that the guests could be photographed in costume. And indeed, the Martin family still has an album with all of these photographs in it. To their amazement and dismay, the Martins and their guests were subjected to a storm of criticism from the pulpit and the editorial press for this lavish and ostentatious display. What's worse, the city's tax assessors increased the taxes on the Martins' house by 200% and did the same to some of their friends. Even the family was displeased. Martin's brother, the philanthropist and social critic Frederick Townsend Martin, blasted the ball, and it later figured in his book, The Passing of the Idle Rich. In the wake of this tempest, the Bradley Martins left for England on March 11, 1897, and they resided abroad for the rest of their lives. 
Whatever the effect of the ball may have been on his parents, it certainly didn't turn the young Bradley Martin, remember he's the father of our collector, into a social pariah. For in 1904, he married Helen Phipps, the third child of Carnegie partner Henry Phipps. Helen Martin had the Phipps reticence in spades. His not, her not terribly nice son, Esmond, later said that the two things she was best at were tennis and avoiding people. In any event, the Martins came to live in New York City and at a 100-acre estate in Westbury, Long Island, the estate being called Knoll after the ancestral home of the Sackvilles in England. And they had four sons who lived to adulthood, all of whom were given the middle name Bradley. There was some talk of a hyphen early on, but it never materialized. Our book collector, Henry Bradley Martin, known inevitably as Bradley, was the eldest son, born in New York City on March 27, 1906. His brothers were Townsend, Alistair, and Esmond, the last two being twins. While his father was serving as a major in World War I, the father was gassed in action but survived, the young Bradley spent his summers in New Hampshire, where he went birding with the eminent naturalist Gerald Thayer, the author of a wonderful book on protective coloration called Protective Coloration. Thus, Bradley Martin's interest in birds came early, although he was not to act on this interest for many years. Like many another socially prominent New Yorker of his time, the young Bradley Martin attended the Browning School in Manhattan. Unlike most of his classmates, however, he found his way to 14th Street, then a center for antiquarian booksellers. According to family legend, his first real purchase as a collector was a rebound copy of Tom Sawyer. After completing his secondary school career at St. George's in Rhode Island, where people like the gardeners also went, Martin carried the book collecting bug with him to England, where he followed in his father's footsteps by spending his college years in Oxford at Christchurch College. The young Bradley was a five-year undergraduate, however, for he spent more time in London than in the lecture halls of Oxford, although it is said now that he spent a great deal of time in Charing Cross Road. That, I think, was one of the places where he spent a lot of time. <laughs> On his return to America in 1929, Martin went out to Denver, which was the home of his relative, Senator Lawrence C. Phipps. This trip was an important experience for the young Martin, for a humdinger of an automobile accident provided him with enforced time for reading and contemplation. He was in hospital for four months. During this period of recuperation, he discovered the works of the writer-traveler-naturalist W.H. Hudson, a discovery that sparked his interest in collecting literature and which in time led to a renewed interest in ornithology. Martin eventually formed the finest collection of Hudson's work in private hands, including proof sheets of green mansions, the author's own copy of Idle Days in Patagonia, about 420 holograph letters, and some 350 pages of manuscript material. The last particularly rare, as Hudson was one of those people who burned manuscript material left in his possession. By September 1930, Martin was back in New York and marrying Catherine Todd. They were divorced in 1947. By the end of 1933, the Martins had become the parents of two daughters, both, of course, with the middle name Bradley. Investments horse racing, and book collecting occupied much of Martin's time in the 1930s and after. First, the American and European literature collections grew, 
joined in later years by the ornithological and finally the French literature collections with interesting miscellaneous masterworks along the way. Wherever he was and whatever was going on, Bradley Martin collected books. Even during World War II, which he experienced intimately enough to lose a good part of his hearing, he managed to collect, buying, for instance, an illuminated manuscript written in 1500 for the Queen of Spain and other works while stationed with the OSS in London in 1944. And he managed to arrange to use diplomatic pouches for auction catalogs, bookseller catalogs, and the like so that he could keep up. The immediate post-war period brought a new marriage in 1947 to Jacqueline Amond. They had two children, a girl and a boy, both with the middle name Bradley. And it is said that the second Mrs. Martin, though not a book collector herself, urged her husband to pursue his interest in ornithology and that his collecting in this area really took off in 1948 as he worked to develop what would become the most important and comprehensive collection of ornithological works in private hands anywhere in the world. Eventually, he had to undertake the work of consolidating this collection, which came to be spread around several residences and the Day and Meyer storage vaults. So he bought it a house. He bought it Rose Hill Farm in Greenwood, Virginia, just out Charlottesville. Then he hired away from Swan Galleries, the former British intelligence officer and cataloger Gillian Kyles to sort out the books and catalog them. This project eventually came to me because Martin wanted a computer system which could be used to produce both an in-house catalog and inventory, complete with locations by shelf and cost, and a typeset catalog with every sort of index imaginable, by bird, by egg, by illustrator, by engraver, and so on. Now, by the end of 1985, some 7,500 of the most important books had been, well, cataloged once, gone through once, but not completed. But the second part, and the far more important part of the project, was never undertaken, which is a real shame, especially when you think that I had it worked out that the whole thing would have cost under $40,000, including hardware. Those were old days. At that time... There was much talk about Martin giving ornithological books to an institution, though in the end, he did not give away any of his books. David Kirschenbaum has observed that. He was always giving them away with one hand and taking them back with the other. I don't think he could bear to live without them. Now, there's been a fair amount of speculation lately about why Martin didn't give away any of his books, and all kinds of reasons have been given for it. And any of them may be true, but it should also be said that institutions were fairly stupid in negotiating with him for the books over the years. I can remember one that explained at length to him about how librarians would come in and pick and choose to fill the holes and leave him all the rest of his books with just the ones they needed taken out, which caused him to stop speaking to the director of that institution. When he offered minor books to an upstate New York institution, they were too quick to ask for maintenance money and to virtually, virtually demand some of the more costly materials. That was the end of them. In addition to questions about Martin's character and about changes in the tax laws in the mid-1980s, a moment must be taken to think about diplomacy and the techniques used by librarians to woo donors and collections. This may be an area that needs some work. 
In the end, in any event, it was left to the Bessemer Trust, which is the FIPS bank, bill-paying machine, and general money handler, to decide how to dispose of the books, though Martin left some ineffective instructions in his will. And that is why Martin's death on April 23, 1988, was followed by a battle royal among Sotheby's, Christie's, and Habsburg Feldman for the books. Looked at another way, what the Martin executors at Bessemer Trust did was to force the auction houses themselves into a bidding situation. Each house tried to outdo the other in terms offered. If Bessemer was concerned about leaving the ornithological books unguarded in Virginia, then Christie's would propose to house them in a wine storage facility, while Sotheby's would offer to alter its York Avenue premises so that the books could be housed in the loving arms of its book department. The theories as to why Sotheby's won the right to have the sale are many, but nobody really knows precisely why it turned out that way. What Sotheby's won was the right to sell $40 million worth of books that, unless somebody like the Duke of Devonshire empties out his collection, will be the highest dollar value of any grouping to be seen at auction for the rest of the century. I mean, this is the biggie. It is the product of 62 years of collecting with virtually unlimited funds, a good brain, unlimited time for study, and for lunch, for years and years with the likes of Gordon Ray weekly, or anybody else that he might have cared to talk to. Not counting things like children's books, which he bought on block and didn't really add to, and not counting what I would think what I think of as wartime boredom books, the collection basically divides itself roughly into three categories: ornithology, Anglo-American culture and literature, and French literature of the 19th and early 20th centuries. When I think of Bradley Martin as a collector, I think of Alec Guinness in Kind Hearts and Coronets. Remember that movie? He played all the members of the Dascoigne family. Now, Martin the Birdman had a superb working collection, but not always the greatest copies. Martin the Anglo-American culture and lit collector was sort of a high spot guy, with, for instance, eight superb trollops, but that's all, a fair amount of Hemingway, but nothing minor like Horrible Old Across the River or Movable Feast. No Shakespeare first folio, no Caxton. Charles are only in the 1542 works. More things, as I've said, like Hudson and Lafcadio Hearn than you'll see for a long time. Loads of superb Hawthorne, Poe, and Melville. But mainly superb, enchanting copies of well-known books. Now, the French Martin, on the other hand, collected in depth endless Balzac and Hugo and Georges Sand, not to mention Théophile Gautier, and with the now old-fashioned preference for original rappers. Now, the first part of the collection to be sold was the beginning of Ornithology. This was held in June in five sessions, and there are more bird books to come in December 12th and 13th. But evidently not all the bird books, because I've heard, and I'd love to know whether this is true or not, that some of them may not, in fact, be sold of the minor scholarly works. 
Now, the first part made $11,565,675. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about these three days. Because it was these events which led myself and some other people to become worried enough to start thinking about cultural protectionism. Now, the three days of the sale were like three dramatic events entitled the dress rehearsal, the revolt of the telephone people, and the great frame-up. The Martin auctions began with an evening sale, the first for books and manuscripts in New York for many years. It was called John James Audubon, Magnificent Books and Manuscripts, and it saw original subscriber John Heathcote's copy of The Birds of America sell for $3,600,000 to the inevitable telephone bidder. As a whole, though, this session gave the wrong impression to a number of those presents. First of all, it did look like a dress rehearsal. All of Sotheby's was extremely dressed up and looked extremely glorious. Everybody who came to buy came in what they happened to have on that day, so there was a little bit of a gap in what was going on. Now, to the untutored eye, the proceedings seemed somewhat like a rehearsal as well, for 13 of the 38 lots in this session failed to sell. The ill-starred 13 were all manuscript items, and most of them came from the collection of Grace Phillips Johnson, and were last seen at Christie's New York in May of 1977, where they didn't have a terrifically easy time either. Some were letters from Audubon to members of his family, but most were drafts of episodes or descriptions for the ornithological biography, and were pieces that would be interesting to scholars, but not to those buying ornithological work as art rather than books. Graphic rather than written interest seemed to be a key factor in prices and even sales for this session. Indeed, even the great 1926 Holograph Journal was bought by Joel Oppenheimer of Chicago's Douglas Kenyon Incorporated for $200,000, which may be a record for an Audubon manuscript, but which was a full $50,000 below the low estimate. Books fared better, with an incomplete set of the parts issue of the 1839-44 American edition of the Birds of America, selling at $16,000, and a set of that edition in seven volume going to Grammar Raider at $17,000. The dedication copy of William McGillivray's Descriptions of the Rapacious Birds of Great Britain, 1836, inscribed by the, by Audubon, to Audubon by the author, and later in the possession of John Woodhouse Audubon and Maria Audubon, exceeded its high estimate and sold at $1,800, which still was cheap for such an interesting association copy. But although the session seemed mixed with half as many lots, that is 13, not selling, as selling, 25 sold, in money terms, only 1.3% of the lots were bought in. For the Elephant Folio Audubon had flown way over the high estimate of $3 million by $600,000. Now the second session, the magnificent color plate ornithology, and the uh, Sotheby's did hold exhibitions of all these things, by the way, for days before the sale. And to me, it was a great shame that very few people came to see, other than people actively buying. Very few people came as a treat to see some of these things that they would never see again. And that really is kind of too bad. 
Anyway, this session was called Magnificent Color Plate Ornithology by Sotheby's and The Revolt of the Telephone People by me. Big books went for equally big prices and almost invariably to somebody on the telephone who was bidding independently of the dealers in the room. Now, the traditional natural history or ornithological sale of the past decade has been an affair of slightly lower than might be expected prices, with most of the activity being in the room. Some of these sales have been straightforward. Some of these sales have tend to be ringed. But nevertheless, prices have not generally been much higher than expected in any of them until quite recently. Now here, the room numbered about 50 again, and in terms of big ticket items, the room was mainly useful for underbidding. Sotheby's had done a superb job of marketing the sale to art collectors and others who completely bypassed the dealer network and bid for themselves over the telephone, although many would be willing to bet that one phone line being conducted in French uh, resulted in books going to a French dealer. Even Grammar Raider, who dropped out of contest after contest, leaving the field to the telephone people, grinned and congratulated Sotheby's on their catalog distribution. The final total for the day of $5,259,450 meant that the high estimate had been exceeded by almost $2 million. Now, whether or not the telephone people were wise to bypass the dealers is another matter. In a number of instances, things happened that made one wonder whether some of the telephone people weren't in severe need of dealer expertise. For example, Sir William Jardine's copy of Edward Lear's illustrations of the family of, and I never can say this word, or parrots, uh, 1830 through 32, with two additional preliminary lithographs that were not in the final work, sold for $190,000. But a second copy, not signed by anybody and without any additional lithographs, sold for $210,000, which is nonsense worthy of Lear himself. And in bidding on works by authors other than Lear, the telephone people didn't seem to care about matters such as, was coloring contemporary, was it later, any of these things which dealers would care about a lot. The telephonic victories were many. A series of 300 watercolored paintings of birds for Eliezer Albin's Natural History of Birds sold for $240,000, while the only known copy in parts of Thomas Brown's Illustrations of American Ornithology made $60,000. And an early issue of the same work in one volume, with plates 44 and 61 printed before the addition of final figures, made $55,000. On and on it went. The Heritage Bookshop from California snagged a bird here and there. A raider who's used to starring in these auctions captured Elliot's pheasants at $85,000 and got a few other books. But by and large, the telephone people carried the day. Now, this is a very unusual sort of thing until now. It used to be that if you went to an auction, you knew, first of all, who was bidding for what institution. 
You knew, for instance, when Fleming was, visit, uh, was bidding for Regenstein. You knew when Mike Papantonio was bidding for Bradley Martin. You knew pretty much, if you stayed in there and knew people and gossip by the end of the day, where just about everything had gone. As the telephone becomes more and more important, you don't know where things have gone anymore. And this also may turn out to be a problem for scholars who used to sort of plug into the dealer network and find out where materials they needed had gone. And this becomes more difficult, finding where things are. And this was something that we began to notice a great deal during this. Now, the final session of this was devoted to the original watercolors for Selby's illustrations of British ornithology. And this was known locally as the Great Frame-Up. Martin owned an archive of 277 of these original drawings for the Selby work. Of these, 217 were by Selby himself, 55 were by Robert Mitford, 4 were by Sir William Jardine, and 1 was by Edward Lear. And guess which one of them sold for the most amazing price? It was Edward Lear's Great Auk at $60,000. The second highest price being Selby's Purple Harem at 55. These drawings brought $1,482,085, even though 68 of them were bought in. Uh, one of the things here, of course, there was a lot of adverse comment from scholars and others about uh, this archive being broken up. And no institution did come up with the money, but this leads to think not about this particular archive, but about institutions coming up with money. Somehow, institutional money has shrunk a lot. Things that used to be quite commonly bought when they came up. Of course it would go to this collection. Of course it would go to that collection. This money has evaporated because of the levels that the art and book and manuscript markets have reached today. And that's why I think looking at these these things, and a number of people have come to this now, and watching, for instance, the Audubon Journal not go to a great library, but to go to a dealer where anybody can pick it off, take it anywhere, it may disappear from view, it may be mounted with a broken up Audubon, leaf by leaf, and dispersed all over the world. Who knows? And so this brings us to a lack that we have in this country. Now, for instance, in England, and I've said this before, but it bears repetition, there is, first of all, a Minister of the Arts who holds cabinet rank. A radical thought for here, but not a bad idea. There has also been, since 1952, something called the Reviewing Committee on the Export of Works of Art. Now, it, it is a small committee, but it has lots of advisory committees of experts. And this was started, there was a committee, head, another committee, which was headed by Lord Waverley, and they came up with criteria uh, that important books, manuscripts, and works of art had to pass before licenses were granted them. Now, if the answer was yes to any of the Waverley criteria, then there would be a period of time before this work could be exported. There were three of them. 
Is the object so closely connected with our history and national life that its departure would be a misfortune? Is it of outstanding aesthetic importance? Is it of outstanding significance for the study of some particular branch of art, learning, or history? Now, what would happen if the answer was yes is that a license would be denied while institutions would attempt to raise the equivalent of the object's purchase price. This to be done privately, by public subscription, or through something called the National Heritage Memorial Fund. Another thing that often happens in England, but not too often, was that although the tax laws give no deduction, if there was something that was truly wanted that was in this position, it could be donated in exchange for tax forgiveness. But the shoe was on the other foot. It wasn't donors giving things that would be deductible just because they gave them. The object, or whatever it was, would have to be wanted by an important museum, an important library, or whatever. Now in France, as you may know, the Bibliothèque, I would love to be the person from the Bibliothèque Nationale who goes to auctions and says, I'll have that. Yeah, I think that would be enormous fun. And people eventually get paid for them. But uh, uh, I, I think this sort of thing, it may be time for this. There are other things in the Bradley Martin sale which I think probably should be here. The Martin copy of The Federalist, which is that Tinker to Evers to Chance thing where Hamilton had it bound, Madison wrote out the names of everybody who wrote them, and then they gave it to Washington. I mean, that really does belong here. Uh, Poe's copy of Eureka with all his annotations. There are four or five or six. This doesn't mean whole great graphs of things, but there are a few things, and there are things that come up in other collections. And unless we figure out some sort of machinery here, because we no longer can just buy everything, just boom like that, which means that we need some way to protect cultural heritage, if nothing happens in this direction, then things are going to go all over the world, disperse themselves. Because I think benefaction is pretty much a thing of the past, by and large. The big donors are not out there donating in the way they used to be. The big tax lawyers are, are, are bending their ears in all directions, and the big tax lawyers say no, and more and more people are, are dominated by that these days. Now, one thing that interested me was after I wrote about this, I learned that Australia has just enacted laws like those in England. So, I mean, this is something that is happening now, beginning to happen in other parts of the world. And I think that here is a serious project for RBMS to undertake. I would suggest that while everybody else is feeling superior to Johnny Fronmeyer, who is our new head of the National Endowment for the Arts, although I can't see that he's ever been outside of Oregon, while other people are raising their noses at him, it might be time to leap in with a project that should be a welcome relief from Robert Maplethorpe and other controversies. The Bush administration might even be able to do some good here. So I do think that it is time now for librarians and for the RBMS to get together and begin proposing various forms of legislation that will keep certain important 
American works and documents here in our libraries so that people can use them. Thank you very much, Kathy. Come and meet the speaker at a reception in room 523, where you can also play with the type mold there, too. Room 523.